five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Boucher. Welcome to the Space Economy Podcast and the third of 10 episodes in our special series, Doing Business in the Solar System, hosted by Elizabeth Howell. Today's podcast is about NASA's Artemis ecosystem with Dr. Alex Ellery. Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a Space Q podcast and your host is Elizabeth Howell. NASA's next steps in the solar system include going back to the moon. The agency is working on its Artemis program that is supposed to put boots on the surface sometime in the 2020s if the deadline holds. It's a little different from the Apollo years. This time, the agency will be bringing in international astronauts and robots. To learn more about the Artemis ecosystem, we'll have a chat with Alex Ellery. Dr. Ellery is a Canada Research Professor in Space Robotics and Space Technology at Carleton University in Ottawa. He's also written extensively about the Artemis program, and we'll be talking a little bit, a little bit about that here. Welcome, Professor. Uh, hello. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on here. We really do appreciate it. So um, just to take a big step back to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page, why does NASA want to return to the moon after we already did so in the 1960s and 1970s with Apollo, at least with humans? Uh, well, the reasons for the 1960s, 1970s Apollo missions were actually purely political. Uh, it was grandstanding to prove that the United States in during the height of the Cold War uh, was technologically superior to the Soviet Union. So that drove that particular uh, scenario. Today, we live in a different world, of course, um, but the, the world, the, what's motivating going to the moon today uh, is very different. It's partly because if we want to explore space beyond the International Space Station, the moon is really the only place we can go. It's the next logical stage. Uh, particularly if we're talking about going to asteroids and then going onto Mars and so on and to the wider solar system, the, the next step is the moon. And the moon, of course, is very close to the Earth. Uh, it's really a relatively short journey to get there. We can do a lot of tr uh, technological trials and testing of different technologies and different approaches uh, if we want to put a, a solid foothold into the space environment. So that's really the, the, uh, the primary difference. In terms of uh, the way in which we do it, uh, there was a few years ago there was an approach uh, 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 that came out of NASA, which was essentially a kind of an Apollo on steroids uh, approach. This was obviously uh, so like a, just essentially a repeat performance. The big difference today is that the focus is on commercial uh, participation. Uh, and NASA and the US in general and the world in general is very keen to actually try to try and incorporate the private sector into uh, the the lunar exploration program. And I think this is a huge difference. This is makes completely changes the complexion of the lunar exploration program for the future. And I think it is a positive step in the right direction. So you're referring there to the commercial lunar payload services program or CLIPS? Uh, yes, yes. Well, partly. Uh, that's part of the approach. That's th that's mostly focused on things like uh, um, launches, landers, and so on and so forth. What I'm 
there are there are also aspects to um, in situ resource utilization and so on, which uh, again potentially provide potential commercial services. And actually, something I wanted to touch upon in terms of in situ resource utilization. And so, as I understand it, when we were looking at the moon with the Apollo era astronauts and technology, there were some things about the moon that are fundamental to our understanding today, such as finding water that we did not really know about back then, right? And so, what kind of resources might be useful to these future explorers, such as water? Is there anything else that might be of help? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about water in a minute because I, I think uh, it's not quite as straightforward with the water issue. Um, the, there are other resources. Um, there are, the moon is a, essentially a silicate uh, uh, planet. It, it has uh, mineral resources which potentially have various metals and oxygen and so on and so forth uh, built, you know, essentially incorporated in the minerals. You know, things like ceramics as well can also be extracted and glasses. So we have the, uh, if we really take a view to um, uh, essentially become like, like the kind of like uh, indigenous American or indigenous Canadian, we could potentially uh, uh, leverage a lot from the lunar surface um, than we are currently looking at. Um, you know, the idea, if we want to be truly sustainable, we have to utilize the moon, the moon's resources as much as we can. We want to extract uh, everything that's useful. We want to waste nothing. Uh, we want to utilize everything to minimize the amount of material that we need to uh, send from Earth. Uh, this is one of the things I work on. And then uh, what is the use of bringing in international partners and commercial partners. You touched slightly upon the commercial partners, but what is the benefit to NASA for bringing in all these other entities as opposed to the old way of going on their own? Well, first of all, uh, politically, we're, we're friends now. <laughs> uh, well, sort of. Sort of. Um, the, uh, the primary reason that actually is cost. It's the, 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 and this model was used on the International Space Station. Uh, the United States bore the, the, by far the hugest brunt of the cost, but uh, still the participants uh, managed to reduce some of those costs. For example, we had Russian involvement at the time. Uh, who provide the supply. Uh, we also had uh, the Japanese and the Europeans and the uh, uh, Canadians and so on. So uh, the, the primary reason is to try and spread the cost of uh, performing these these types of missions. The, the days of Apollo are long gone. Um, the, again, the Apollo mission was uh, an American mission. Um, but it was still done in the in the context of uh, all all humankind. This is basically a practical aspect of that of actually involving international partners. And then um, let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the partners. So you happen to be situated in Canada, and I know that you've written about it. So we're going to focus on that for a moment. So just for context for anybody who's listening, Canada's agreement in the International Space Station is somewhere around 2.3%, if I have that number correct. And so the way that we traditionally participate in space exploration as Canadians is to provide uh, services like robotics, uh, the Canada arm, the Dexter, and uh, future generations of that. And then that provides, in a sense, a seat for science and also for astronauts to fly. And it's something that we've done all the way since the beginning of the program, really. It started sort of in the 70s, but then really got going with Mark Arnault in the 80s, and then so on and so forth up to the present day. And so the tricky thing, obviously, is that space is expensive. 
and that the Canadians have historically been relying on other launch partners to bring it up there. So this is sort of as background to what I'm sure Dr. Ellery is going to talk about in a minute. Canada has to make difficult choices, right, Dr. Ellery, about where we're going to be participating in uh, future programs. And so what have you been seeing with our commitment to, for example, participate in Gateway, which is a space station to support Artemis? Is that an appropriate way to be uh, participating given our current level of investment or are there other directions you might be considering? Uh, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, and as you know, I've written about this uh, a few times before. Um, the, ga the gateway is, at the moment, the US is running two programs in parallel. One is Artemis, which is the idea is getting humans onto the surface of the moon. And there's the gateway. Um, the gateway is basically a, a, a kind of like a, relative, a fairly modest station to be into a high elliptical polar orbit. Um, the uh, the idea is to, with Gateway is to essentially transfer legacy knowledge from the International Space Station to towards the moon um, by putting a station around the moon. Now, be aware that it's actually in a very, very highly elliptical orbit, so it's not actually that, that close to the moon. Um, now, Canada has decided to participate by essentially transferring its knowledge and legacy from the International Space Station to the Gateway by providing, for example, version of the Canada arm. This makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, however, I do view the Gateway as a bit of a red herring. Um, the, there are two ways to go to the Moon. One is to observe the moon from a high orbit, which is what the gateway essentially is going to do. Um, and the other is to put boots on the ground. Now, the gateway, much like the International Space Station before it, is a kind of hybrid uh, uh, mission. The idea is that NASA, there's a long-term goal associated with the, the gateway, and that is to provide a, a kind of like a stepping stone or at least a, a, a staging area for some kind of future human Mars mission way off into the future, whenever that might be. Now, there are two factors here. The first is that the uh, that kind of detracts from surface activities, from the, and particularly in terms of Canada's involvement. It means that the vast majority of the resources that are going to the, to the Canadian participation are going to the gateway, and hardly anything towards uh, putting people on, onto the surface of the moon. Most of that is driven by science, uh, scientific instrumentation and so on, rather than actually putting human astronauts onto the Canadian astronauts onto the surface of the moon. The most likely scenario is that most Canadians will be uh, associated with the gateway. Um, the, our participation with, with Artemis will be very, very, very minor at the moment because the amount of resources, financial resources going to that is very small. Uh, the second aspect is that uh, there is now the private sector involvement, uh, which is driving uh, the surface element, uh, getting to the surface of the moon quite dramatically. It almost makes the gateway totally irrelevant um, to what Elon Musk, Elon Musk has recently won the contract for putting a, a you know, basically developing the lander for the moon. Um, and to me, this, this almost makes the gateway an irrelevance. Um, for the foreseeable future. And if Canada is focused on the gateway, we will essentially lose out to what's happening on the surface of the moon. That said, though, we do have that seat on the second Artemis mission, right? The one that's going to be going around the moon, not landing, but going around because of our participation in gateway, right? Yes. 
Yeah, so uh, this means that I guess more negotiations need to be had <laughs> to figure out where to go. <laughs> uh, yes, but I, I just feel that, uh, you know, we should be participating. Uh, to me, it's almost like uh, the, there's the other issue, of course, is that all this money is going to a single company. Um, the, to me, the focus on the gateway is not the right way for Canada to be focusing. We have a lot of expertise in mining in this country. We have a lot of expertise in uh, various types of processes, you know, for for utilizing natural resources, um, which we could be deploying towards the moon, which we're not because we don't have the money to, to develop that, those capabilities, which essentially means we'll lose out in the long term. Fair enough. So we've talked in a little bit of detail about one of the international partnerships. And of course, for anyone listening in around the world, you might want to be examining what's going on with the European Space Agency, which also has Artemis commitments, as well as uh, other countries to see what's going to happen with your district. But I really want to start to lean into the robots, because I know this is where your research begins to shine. And so earlier, we briefly touched upon CLIPS, or the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. Do you mind giving a little bit of a status update, you know, what the program has been able to achieve so far, and some of its upcoming missions? Uh, actually, I, I know what CLIPS is, but I don't know the, the details, so you'll have to forgive me. Okay, well, uh, just quickly, I know that we do happen to have the Peregrine landing that's going to be happening uh, later this year. Um, but maybe we could just speak a little bit more generally about, in your opinion, having done a lot of research in this, what are the risks and rewards of having robots working alongside people on the moon? And you could take it from a CLIPS perspective or anything else you feel might be useful. Sure. Uh, well, the obvious advantage of having robots uh, working with people is that we essentially can have a division of labor. Uh, there's, there's always been this argument about robots versus humans in space exploration, and I've always felt it's never been uh, a question of one versus the other. They're both complementary. Robot, robotics, of course, uh, essentially provides a means to extend human capabilities, or at least some of human capabilities, into these hostile environments uh, to perform dangerous explorations, uh, to perform surveys, where it'd be very difficult or expensive for humans to do. So you can imagine this like uh, that robots essentially uh, perform one role that they perform is essentially kind of like a, a sort of form of reconnaissance. Uh, they can reconnoiter the, the local environment. They can perform wide exploration of, of, the, of the environment before we actually send humans there. The second aspect is that robots can actually perform a lot of functions which uh, would be really wasteful for humans to do. Um, things like simple construction tasks, simple like mining tasks, which you don't really want astronauts anywhere near because it's potentially dangerous. So robots can be tasked with performing things like, uh, especially the in-situ resource utilization aspects, you know, things like um, uh, trying to build habitats, uh, trying to build, uh, assuming they don't come prefabricated, that is, um, trying to extract water resources, trying to extract other resources like uh, metals and so on and so forth. These processes would have to be automated before we can actually make them happen uh, in any real sense. Um, that's going to take a certain amount of development time, but you know we have techniques now where we can we, we, the world is becoming more and more automated. so these these technologies can be applied uh, to, to the extra you know to the lunar environment essentially. 
So the, the robots essentially perform two functions. They reduce the costs of actually having too many humans around. And secondly, they provide uh, uh, the ability to reconnoiter the environment. And thirdly, they provide the ability to perform some like labor-saving uh, um, tasks as well. So this will, again, all feed into this idea of reducing the costs. And also, we have seen a couple of examples lately, especially from the Chinese, about the value of robots on the room, right? Like for example, we had that far side landing it was just about a year ago, if I have that right. And uh, uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I, I realized that given the nature of Chinese state media, that the information we get is somewhat limited. But what does the potential show? The fact that the Chinese were able to land, I think it was two missions on the moon and have a couple of rovers are working on a sample return, got that back, and now they're going to get uh, results. What kind of things are we learning from their experience? Uh, it, basically, what we're learning is how to do things uh, quickly and aggressively. Uh, they've they've been working in leaps and bounds. Uh, essentially, you know, if you remember, it's like 20, 20 years ago that they had a pretty much pretty like uh, embryonic uh, space exploration program. Uh, it's moved very very quickly. Um, they they're obviously extremely competent. Um, and they also have, they've also introduced uh, pioneering stuff as well. For example, nobody ever thought to put some kind of, a, a, like, um, a, almost like an agricultural experiment on, on the moon. And, and this was on in one of their very first missions, was to put some kind of agricultural experiment. They're also looking forward uh, very far, well, maybe not so far in the future, but certainly is further in the future than most of us are, um, with an eye to, uh, I think, to perhaps dominating uh, um, the moon's, the, the occupation of the moon, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, I think they're moving in leaps and bounds. I think if we, you know, at the end of the day, if we just, if we're too complacent, uh, we will fall behind. Fair enough. Now we've been kind of moving around this issue of water, which you said may not be as easy to extract on the surface as we had hoped, even with robots. So do you mind uh, elaborating a bit on what that means and how we could hopefully get around it? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the If you think about the environment in which we're going to be trying to uh, access this water, most of the water is in the polar regions. Uh, in particular, we're focused on the South Pole. Um, if you look at the ambient temperature in these deep, dark craters, it's about 40 Kelvin, 40 degrees above absolute zero, extremely cold. Uh, there's no sunlight. So we were faced with two immediate problems. The first is how do we get how do we how do we get power because we're reliant on sunlight for power? And secondly, how do we operate at these very, very low temperatures? We're talking about mining things at 40 Kelvin, and then we're talking about storing uh, water uh, and maybe electrolyzing it as well, perhaps uh, as well. So the the actual mechanic, the, the rationale behind going for water is that it's relatively easy to access in, you know, from a theoretical point of view, we simply dig up the regolith and then we heat the regolith and it evaporates off and then we condense it. That sounds all very well, uh, all very well and dandy. But once we take into account the fact that we, you know, this has to occur at 40 Kelvin in complete darkness, with no source of power, 
this presents more of an issue. So the reason why I'm, I'm less sanguine about it is that uh, we're going to need to have a fairly extensive infrastructure to, in order to achieve this. Now, JPL, for example, they're proposing these like large mirrors to focus sunlight uh, directly into these craters, which would provide both a certain amount of warmth, um, potentially to heat soil locally, uh, and, and secondly, to provide a source of power. Now, the idea is that these mirrors would be set at these peaks of eternal light, which are quite far from these, these craters uh, where the water resides. Uh, it's the whole issue about how, how to build this infrastructure and send this infrastructure to the moon before we actually start getting what you might call pay dirt. Now, we've all seen in the past, uh, at least I have, uh, and many people who worked in the industry for years, that when it, when budgets come under constraint, uh, the first things that get cut are these like so-called infrastructure um, elements. Um, and so I'm less uh, optimistic about uh, accessing the water uh, from that perspective. There's also the second issue, uh, what are we using water for? Now, the, most people imagine that we're using the water for, and this is also not denied by, by agencies who propose using water, most people assume that we're using water for supporting astronauts. This is not actually the case because most of the kind of like techniques that we have for recycling water and recycling oxygen are fairly well developed. So the amount of the amount of water and oxygen and so on that we need to buy a, a, a lunar base, for example, is going to be relatively modest. The primary motive for uh, accessing the water is to split it into its hydrogen and oxygen components and use that as propellant and oxidizer, so for propulsion. Now, there are, the idea behind that is that, is that we we have, for example, a lot of the American launches use hydrogen oxygen propellant for launch, um, but there are several issues with this. First, firstly, the hydrogen uh, has to be uh, cryogenically cooled to 20 Kelvin, which is an even lower temperature, and stored. Uh, there's a limit to how long you can store it in this way. Uh, and in addition, is this the right way to be treating what is actually a fairly scarce resource on the moon, water, and actually burning it, uh, which is essentially what we'd be doing? Um, and to me, this actually behoves us to learn the lessons of the past that you know we burn fossil fuels on Earth, and you know we suffer the consequences of that. Um, on the moon, water is actually relatively scarce. It, it, it is abundant in in, ab, in absolute terms, but in relative terms, it's it's pretty it's still pretty scarce. Um, uh, should we actually be burning it? And there are other ways to launch from the lunar surface, which are more sustainable. Um, electromagnetic launches cool guns and so on uh, is a potential way of, of launching from the surface of the moon without consuming uh, uh, propellant. The long-term goal uh, is to provide sufficient water to deliver to the gateway for a Mars mission. Now this to me is the, um, the kind of like the underlying rationale behind it. So again, it's using NASA's thinking is that the gate will be used as a relay station. We would then supply a certain amount of hydrogen oxygen propellant to the station, store it up there, and then that would be used for a Mars mission uh, to get to Mars. 
Now, that sounds all well and dandy, but the problem is that the um, Elon Musk and SpaceX do not use hydrogen oxygen engines. They use methane oxygen engines. So if as soon as we factor in uh, SpaceX, uh, this would, to actually make this into a commercial uh, approach, we would have to, um, uh, SpaceX would have to, have to try convert all their engines into hydrogen oxygen, which would be essentially redesigning the whole entire thing. And in fact, if you look at their lunar lander, uh, that is methane oxygen, it's not uh, hydrogen oxygen. There is a way around this. Um, and what I think could probably be the best, best approach was not to focus on the water. Um, well, maybe we can do something with the water, for example, by going into uh, more benign environments such as um, uh, lava tubes. Um, but the water, I think we should change the focus away from water to oxygen. Now, oxygen provide, is basically the, by far the dominant mass required for um, engines, propulsion. Uh, typically about six to eight times the amount, you need six to eight times the, the amount of oxygen as you need for hydrogen when you're creating propellant. So if we refocus on the oxygen, this would allow us to leave those water resources alone and focus actually on the minerals. And obviously the minerals on the moon are vast in quantity, uh, they're not scarce. And using some fairly simple processes, uh, there have been a few prototypes of demonstrating this, where you can actually extract from lunar resources, lunar regolith or lunar minerals, the oxygen. 40% of, of the most of the mass of, of minerals is, is oxygen. We can extract a significant fraction of that, and that could be stored at relatively benign temperatures. Um, for supplying any kind of uh, either for launch or for you know, for SpaceX launches uh, or for um, um, a future Mars mission. Now, to me, it's obvious that Elon Musk has no interest in converting to hydrogen oxygen propulsion because he's he, he's actually developed his engine specifically for Mars, where carbon dioxide is very is very abundant on 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 Mars, and that can be readily converted into, into methane. So this is why he's focused on methane oxygen engines, because they can be resupplied in a Mars context, but it's not much, it, they can't be supplied except for oxygen in a lunar context. Hydrogen oxygen, it makes no sense in that particular, uh, from, from that point of view. So it's really interesting. We can see how hopefully a little bit of long-term thinking might make future space exploration a little bit more efficient, economical. I'm not sure quite what the right word is, but the hope is, of course, that by working on the moon, we can begin to really find ways of exploring other parts of the universe with the same lessons learned, if not the same infrastructure. Although, of course, we're at such an early stage, it's uh, it's hard to say. Um, I think for my final question, I would actually like to focus a little bit on that because as we're recording this, the Biden administration is just finishing its 100 days in office, its first 100 days in office, and it's done quite a bit for NASA. They've named an uh, administrator, for example, nominated an administrator, and that's sort of pending a, a confirmation. But um, while they have committed to Artemis, they have not committed to that 2024 deadline that the Trump administration so dearly wanted. And so what I wanted to know from you, from your opinion, and I realize, again, you're Canadian and might be looking somewhat from the outside, but what do you think the long view is of this program? Because we've seen other efforts over the years from the two Bush presidents, for example, a little bit from Reagan, about uh, trying to get to the moon or at least trying to expand NASA's mandate 
those didn't go forward in the time that was planned. And so will this one happen to succeed or are there sort of uh, tailwinds or dragging factors that might make it more difficult? Uh, that's a, a good question. It's quite a loaded question, really. <laughs> um, the I think the 2024 deadline, I think, is a little unrealistic. It it, it, it would be risky, I think. Um, but that doesn't detract from the general program. It, it may be delayed. Uh, there's, to me, there's no issue about uh, 2024. I mean, the, the idea of 2024 was actually if Trump had been elected and that this would be his finale, as it were, for the end of his second term. Uh, that's no longer an, an issue. Uh, and so the 2024 deadline to me makes no real sense as a hard and fast uh, um, deadline. So I see no reason why it can't continue, you know, can't be stretched out a little bit. Uh, the second factor is that you asked about, well, we've seen this before, um, you know, programs about going to the moon and they all died a death and so on and so forth. And, and that is true. But I think what has made a huge difference is the commercial and uh, commercial players. Um, uh, companies like SpaceX and, and maybe not so much Blue, Blue Origin, uh, but uh, recently, but uh, you know there have been this this drive on the commercial side, uh, private sector companies. Uh, when I say private sector, I mean real private sector, as opposed to kind of like aerospace companies who tend to be sort of like defence oriented. Uh, have a defense-oriented mentality. Um, they have been driving this forward, and there is no doubt that the there is a potential commercial application uh, for utilizing lunar resources, um, which I, I think is extremely. Although I've detracted from using water necessarily, the certainly the oxygen I think uh, is a potential commercial um, uh, source of, of, of revenue uh, by selling it to to launch companies and so on and so forth. That to me is the biggest change. Is this is being driven by the private sector, particularly? You know, these people are. You know, the people who are driving these companies are very imaginative. They're very passionate. Uh, they're not really that concerned about making money. They they're using their their resources and, the, and their fortune to try and drive something forward, uh, which I think is you know essentially a pioneering uh, type of approach. This has made a big difference, and I think it will continue to make a big difference, and I think it will be the driving factor. In a way, it's kind of like the agencies are becoming a little bit, um, I wouldn't say uh, irrelevant, but I'd say the agency, uh, the agencies are not so much in the driving seat now as the private sector is. Uh, and to me, this is a good thing because uh, essentially, if we have the private sector driving things forward, things tend to happen a lot faster. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Ellery. Uh, hope to talk to you again soon. And so that was uh, Doing Business in the Solar System. This is a Space Cube podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you. See you next week.